Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom, Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Alongside me is Italian Chatelaine and TLS commissioning editor Thea Lenarduzzi. I, I wish I were. Chatelaine. I thought I Italian Chatelaine sounded... A castle in, in Italy. It sounded lovely, didn't just it? just an apartment. Now, Thea, <laughs> we've been discussing that we want people to review this podcast on iTunes so more people will hear it. But apparently my infrequent and slightly perfunctory requests have not been enough to get people to do it. So we've got a challenge. Each week, for at least two or three weeks until we all grow tired and forget about no, it. No, it's the enthusiasm oh, that, that's the problem, Stig. All right. <laughs> so we have a challenge each week. We'd like you lovely listeners to leave a review on iTunes in a particular literary style. So we want to challenge you. So we're going to read out the best next week and each time. So this week, we're going to start easy on the literary styles, but I think we might get harder as we go along. We'd like you to review this podcast in the form of a haiku. After all, we were the podcast that had a whole item on Hispano-Welsh haikus. Do you remember that, Thea? Of course. Very good. Um, So here's mine. I wrote one. Do you want to hear it? I am going to. Nice to hear about that Thea Lenarduzzi's feudal landholdings. Ever more absurd these intros will surely be. Don't encourage stick. <laughs> That's very good. Everything's a haiku, really. But you can do I better. I sounded like Yoda. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you do sound like Yoda. Uh, you can do better. Make sure while you're there, you subscribe to the podcast feed. If you want to subscribe to the paper itself, just Google TLS subscriptions and type pod one in the offer code for the best deal. Right, on to this week's show. This month marks the 100th anniversary of partial women's suffrage. The decision to award women over the age of 30 with certain land qualifications the vote. An act of good sense achieved by all sorts of pressures, including the experience of the First World War, the direct action by the suffragettes and the more peaceful protests of the suffragists, a distinction we will be exploring with Emmeline Godfrey. And the TLS this week has a focus on politics and economics more generally. That includes a very fine piece by political commentator Zoe Williams on the future of the British left in the era of that canny old disruptor Jeremy Corbyn. She will be in the studio to foretell what happens next for the Labour Party and the country.
It is fast becoming a political cliche that we are living in exceptionally febrile and excitable times, times in which fundamental change is always on the horizon. And yet, looked at one way, the two-party axis of our politics has seldom looked more stable. Even though the Conservative government lurches from crisis to crisis, unattributable briefing to open dissent, it still appears to command the confidence of around 40% of the populace. Labour, under its messiah-like dissident Jeremy Corbyn, whose decades-held ideas seem to have found their movement is stubbornly supported by another 40%. And the polls are kind of static on this. This is a funny sort of revolution, perhaps. But as Zoe Williams writes in her review of a number of political books this week, the country still seems ready for new ideas, even, one might say, if they aren't good ideas. <coughs> Brexit. In fact, says Zoe, the ideas don't have to be new. They could be as old as your grandparents, nationalise utilities, or as old as time, get rid of foreigners. But they have to be radically discontinuous. So these are momentous times. What do they mean for the Labour Party and then for the country? Zoe Williams is in the studio now. Zoe, welcome. Thank you. Hello. Where to start with this? Are the political conditions that brought us Brexit, which is often seen perhaps wrongly as a right-wing movement, are they the same conditions that ultimately will bring us a Corbyn government, do you think? I certainly think that there's a kind of discontent which feeds both agendas, definitely. And I think, obviously, there is a left-wing Brexit. There's a Lexit, which is another, which is another story. I think the forces driving Brexit were, in terms of the kind of underlying conditions they were essentially squeezed public services stagnating wages and outrageous rents and that is a story that could drive anything anything could basically pick up the reins of that and it's just from my point of view very very unfortunate but not necessarily unexpected that it was brexit that managed to pick up the reins of that but you know the idea that when brexiters say now we were never that anti-immigration they're kind of right because Immigration was only ever a mechanism by which to connect the basic um, features of people's daily lives to the anti-European agenda, which, of course, has very little on stagnating wages, except for the fact that most of the anti-zero hours contract stuff came from Europe. But isn't there a problem for, for Corbyn in, in that he seems to be zeitgeisty on the, all the things you're talking about, mm. on, on, on the austerity problems, on stagnating uh, wages? The point where he divorces himself from a lot of disenfranchised people is exactly that of immigration. He's very pro-immigration, he's pro-widespread immigration. He has this very internationalist view, which is very common actually to the Labour Party, which is that all people are deserving of support and help. Whereas there's a whole core demographic of people saying, not everybody, yeah. I want just local indigenous people to get yeah. this help. And that, that seems to be a gap between his rhetoric and some of the people he thought would otherwise support him. Well, I think a lot, I, I have a lot of response to that. <laughs> Firstly, you know, they, they, he, is in, he is on the internationalist wing. He would never have done one of those controls on immigration mugs that Ed Miliband did. And no. Ed Miliband was a kind of sympathetic person, but he was very easily led. Well, Gordon Brown said Gordon English Brown, jobs for English yeah, workers, yeah, didn't he? He did. Point. It was that weird speech he gave, we're best when we're Labour, and then gave a kind of slightly weird protectionist, yeah, exactly. pre-Trumpian Trump statement about English jobs for English <laughs> workers. So, yeah, they... I think Jeremy Corbyn has a more stable moral centre on whether or not you make immigrants the kind of core of your, whether or not you allow them into the eye of the storm. Because the truth about the conversation about immigration is that you can have a lot of conversations about immigration, but 
if it's the first conversation you're having, it's always toxic. Yeah. So, you know, if it's the sixth conversation you're having and you're saying, is there a way where you can kind of distribute to more prosperous areas so it doesn't so these places don't quite take the hit, then that's different. But if you're say if your conversation starts, can we afford any more foreigners, it always ends in quite an ugly place. The thing about Corbyn is as you say, he's always been very pro-human rights, so he's very pro-Refugee Act, so he's very pro all that. And actually, I don't think people have a problem with refugees. I think if we spoke, if we talked about them as a disaggregated block, people in desperate need of help, to which really we are that? signatories. Oh, yeah. I mean, the truth of it is, if you say to people, I mean, in the end, if you say, and this is the same across Europe, if you say, look, we've all signed up to this, we've all signed up to taking some people running in fear of their lives at the moment, Africa's taking almost all of them and they haven't got any money. It, you can sort of get it past. The problem I want to believe that. I, I had a phone in show on LBC for three remember, years where I, yeah. I, and I've had that conversation. And but you know, it's very striking. There's a big bunch of people who just say, not our problem, but, not our problem, not our problem. The, the thing is, if you look at what Lakoff says about the biconceptual self, everybody's got a generous self and a tightwad self. Everybody's got an honest self and a dishonest self. Everybody's got two moral selves actually and it's it's the kind of language you use to tap into the self that elicits the response so if you're constantly saying we can't afford them and then you ask people what they want they say well, we can't afford them but the other thing i think happened and i think this has been really key in the change of rhetoric around immigration is that there's been a really sustained attack on the economically unproductive English person so you know you maybe you're disabled maybe you're on benefits maybe you're on maternity leave maybe you're ill but th there has been a sustained attack to the point I was talking to my stepmother who is on the trustee board of rethink she said mentally ill people are now treated all the bureaucratic language she used to work in the prison service is the way they used to talk about prisoners it's like you know finding the balance between punishment and rehabilitation finding the balance between incentive and disincentive and they're talking about people like criminals and people on benefits and in a kind of poverty class whatever that poverty is driven by have been recharacterized as criminals by the political debate and in that context immigration is absolutely poisonous because you think hang on a second i'm being i'm being absolutely shafted here i'm being treated like a criminal for not being well enough for work and that polish family is allowed is is welcomed in because they're economically more productive than i am you know where's the compatriotism there where's the solidarity where is the social t togetherness and so i think really the, the that's kind a of, problem for corbyn though isn't it well it is it's more of a problem, I think, if, if he... I think it's more of a problem, ultimately, for the benefits-demonising class, which is the Conservatives, really. Well, or, or it splits into two. I mean, that's what thing we see in this country. This is a country that's riven in two. There's I know, a... but we don't have to talk about people like that. And I think the well, thing no, is... Of course we don't, but we... But we, well, at the moment, we do. But I think the thing is, I, I think Corbyn's... Part of the analysis that is most important is, you know, we don't... We don't hate people just because they're poor, <laughs> and that did come across very much post Grenfell. Yeah. He could he could walk around that council estate and people would hug him because they knew that he didn't despise them. And that I think, in that context, you can say a lot more about immigration than you can if you already despise <laughs> the bottom twenty percent of your populace. Did you have a Damascene moment with him? There must have been a point where, like everybody, you thought, whatever, oh, no. either right, right or wrong, he's not going to get, he can't have enough traction, he's a bad thing for the party. Did you have a moment where you converted? No, I had like the opposite thing, which was the minute I saw, the minute I saw his offer 
I knew he was going to win and I was just kicking myself so much for not having put a bet on. I know that's a really mercenary thing to say, <laughs> but I wrote bloody columns about it saying, you know, I can see Blair's optimism in him. I can see his Blair's certainty in him. I can see so much of Blair in Corbyn, which the, the others don't have. They, they, were, they look so depleted, so exhausted post-2015 election, yeah. so empty of ideas. Mary McRae was, Mary, Mary Cray, sorry, not McRae, was trying to stand for Labour, for leader for a little while on the ticket of free bus fares for 16 to 18 year olds and I seriously I remember hearing that and just put, like dropping my head to the desk which I would never do because it's rude but it was so it's so unambitious and then he came in with boldness and vision and a things can only get better spirit and you hadn't seen a Labour leader like that since Tony Blair so I always thought that he was going to walk Labour leadership and I always was slightly sceptical about the whole He's, it's unrealistic, he can't count, blah, blah. Because, frankly, nothing is ever costed. The Conservatives always pretend they're costed. No, it. I know, It's yeah. never costed. So I never minded about that, but I, I did have a huge wobble after the referendum, and that's why I'm always a kind of critical friend in the Corbyn lot rather than an actual friend friend, because I did think he could have been better. I think we all could have been better at fighting to remain. And I, but I thought he especially could have been better. He didn't, but actually, again, I mean, whatever else you might think, he tends to stick to what he believes. In I know. As much as I, just... I mean, I know he campaigned for Remain, but he is a Brexiter. And I just, in the end, though, does this not damage him as much as it damages the Tories? Because at some point, there's going to have to be a consensus in the Labour Party as to what Brexit position they should hold. Well, it has to be. I mean, I know he correctly, he's putting it off for as long as yeah, possible, yeah, yeah. trying to make it a Tory problem, which it is because they're in government. Yeah, yeah, but he doesn't realise at all, and I think this is key, that it's going to be the problem of whoever's holding the baby. But you can be blaming Cameron until you're blue in the face, but if you're Prime Minister, yeah. when jobs go through the floorboards, it's your fault. And holding the baby is this a kind of key phrase in that as well, because we're talking about the youth vote. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So if he... If he does manage to mobilise this youth vote and get swept in by it, and then he lets them down on Brexit, there was a YouGov poll this morning showing that Labour absolutely hemorrhaged young support if they didn't come out in favour of Remain. Now, I think that's serious enough and that will give them pause when they're doing their election strategy. But much, much worse than that would be if young people voted for him on trust that he would get us out of this Which they may have done, because you know I remember the old... uh, When he went to Glastonbury... Yeah, and the yeah, old Jeremy yeah, Corbyn, yeah. and I remember saying on on the radio, you know, what happened if he just walked out and said, mm. you know what, I believe I, I yeah, believe yeah, in yeah, Brexit. Yeah, yeah. I think the EU is a stitch up of corporate entities, which he always has. That he didn't want to vote to go in. I mean, he, he voted against going no, in in seventy seventy five. I think everybody. I think if he if he said I believe in Brexit, there would definitely. I think there would just be then bitter bitter wrangles between his youth support, which would be tragic because. But how does how does he how does he square this circle? Because if he says I don't believe in Brexit, it comes out as Remain. All those northern working class people who felt they could trust him enough on Brexit meant they didn't when they left UKIP they didn't go to the Tories they went to Labour that he hemorrhages in another direction well I don't know if that's true you see because actually Labour is majority even though seven out of ten Labour constituency are majority leave six out of ten Labour voters or six and a half out of ten Labour voters are majority remain and I think what we're what we're talking about really is a cephalogical point about what who you throw to the wolves yeah, there yeah. because you have to throw someone to the wolves and do you actually do what your supporters want and then try and mop up constituency votes or do you just do or do you kind of 
try and game the numbers and keep the constituencies. I mean, I just I think there's a moral case to be made here. You know, there's. Everybody's talking about hard Brexit and soft Brexit now as though that's like the bad option and the good option. Soft Brexit is disastrous. Soft Brexit is we lose all our rights in all our kind of say over everything, but we keep being governed by them. And soft Brexit just squares us up for a hard Brexit further down the line. When we wake up in five years and say, hang on a second, we're still taking EU law. It's just now we can't I think this frame is always going to be. This is classic Britain, I think, <clears> that we're going to spend years and billions of pounds and massive amount of wasted effort and end up with something that looks a little bit similar to being in the EU but isn't. Part of me even wishes that was true because I think we're going to end up with something that looks a bit like it but is much less good, like much less good. Then when we find out how much less good it is, we have this horrible rigmarole all over again and end up with something a lot less good than that. That's. Do you think that if Jeremy Corbyn were to say, OK, you want radical, this is radical, I'm going to stop Brexit, I'm going to campaign yeah. to stop Brexit and reverse it, uh, well, before it's even started properly. What What do you think would happen? Do you think there was there's any chance that people who would have voted another way would come to the Labour Party? Oh do you think that God, would make would up for the, for the loss? Yeah, I think it would be absolutely massive. He'd never because do it, think, He doesn't believe it. Well, no, I mean, look, Jeremy Corbyn, as he said, and I, think, and I believe him, he was 7.5% out of 10 remain I mean he has mm. got remain bones in his body I he think does he's want... still able to be persuaded yeah exactly he does want a jobs first Brexit and there isn't a jobs first Brexit which mean, means that doesn't mean anything that doesn't yeah, that no, but there isn't I mean there isn't even there isn't a variation on Brexit that actually delivers British jobs so if no. he does want a jobs first I think he's perfectly persuadable by the unions perfectly persuadable and I think he always has been persuadable by the unions and I think the unions are fronting up to persuade him but I do think as you say anybody would be scared of the electoral consequences the benefit of Corbyn of course is that he does not care what front pages say so they could go Hertz van rental and he (laughs) it wouldn't make any difference but also I don't think he really he doesn't care so much about being elected in the sense that he would presumably oh. pu- he'd presumably risk it for a sake of principle, wouldn't he? I mean, I everything he's done so far has suggested he's not compromised on very much. I don't know about that. I think he's pretty keen on getting Does elected. Does he know? No, yes. now, now he can see it. <laughs> can he taste it? Yeah, think, I mean, I think, I think there is a kind of real sense that it's closer to happening than it's ever been. And it but why is this different to... from the 80s? I think that's a really interesting okay, point. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so, so, so hard left. So this is the hard left, as was called. Yeah. Corbyn really does represent that and it has done since the 80s. Yeah, and I that think... That was never considered electable. Yeah. And now it is. Are they changed or have just circumstances changed? Well, I've been thinking a lot about this because I've also thinking about the failures of my generation, which I think is not you two's generation. So you, I'm not calling you failures. <laughs> but... Um, there's this thing called the father-son cycle where you have very radical fathers fighting injustice, then completely inert, indolent sons who got bored of the injustice, and then the next generation is a new father generation. And I think that's what happened to those of us who were young in the 90s. We were so sick of all that 80s wrangling that we were like post-irony, post-modern, not everybody's middle class, nobody needs to worry about this anymore, that we don't need old industries, why don't they just, just go away, just go on the sick, don't worry about it, we can afford it. Like a completely apolitical post-ideological sort of useless phase which is partly what has brought us to Brexit because there haven't been any kind of competent middle-aged people in charge it's all crazy pensioners and and Jacob Rees-Mogg I mean Jesus (laughs) but anyway um, I think when I look back on the when I look back on the kind of contortions and constipations of the left when I was young the stuff that really put me off it and made me 
very kind of disco and primal scream in the 90s. There was a kind of structural problem with class. It was a labour movement. It was meant to be a party of the working classes, but yeah. middle class people had already slightly co-opted it. And middle and labour activism, certainly in London, was very, very middle class, but it was on behalf of working class people. But there, it was a kind of co-opted movement and there was kind of constant... It was very gestural. It was very aerated. A lot of people kind of, you know, trying to prove their working class credentials or apologising to the working class that they weren't working class enough. Or I remember loads. I remember loads of awful, wrangly conversations about whether this guy should join the House of Lords. Obviously, it's bad to be a hereditary lord, but then he would be the only left wing one. So should he? Shouldn't he? Should he? Shouldn't he? Maybe he should give his expense account to a homeless person. You know, and all that kind of. All that real, and it was kind of genuine embarrassment and shame and anxiety around having appropriated a, a labour movement and the labour movement no longer being a kind of a pure, solid voice of, of, of working class as we knew it, um, together with the kind of destruction of the industries, which is kind of Thatcher was, she didn't care about our constipation. She was just... Just doing it. Just doing it, just going for it. So you had a kind of complete um, betrayal of the of the actual working class at the same time as everybody middle class was really worried about having taken their party. Which kind of created the perfect base for yeah, Tony Blair for Tony to come Blair. along and say, we're all, we're exactly. all middle class. And so all... he comes along and says, we're all middle class. And everybody's like, oh, thank God. Now I don't have to have... <laughs> A middle class person telling me they're more working class than they are and I don't have to look at a working class person and feel guilty for stealing their movement and you know we're all friends because we're all the same and we're all on the same side and it was kind of bullshit right because the structural problems that persisted persisted and got worse it got worse and worse and worse and all of the things that we thought represented an end of those problems was really just a kind of debt bubble or a post redistribution by tax credit and you know I get into a lot of trouble when I say that because loads of people really love tax credits but <laughs> I was looking at all this stuff and what Tony Blair represented and the kind of failures of what he represented and then I thought the really interesting thing about Corbyn now is that he does it that young people don't understand that kind of they don't understand that stuff because yeah. you get a middle class young person and they can't afford their rent either yeah. they're not getting paid properly either I know I've got I've got a kid who babysits for, no who dog sits for me who's got he's got two degrees and he's he's working for Deliveroo yeah. and he's really genuinely up against it on I mean you know they're all screwed they're all screwed by housing they're all screwed by student yeah. debt they're all screwed by low wages and intern culture and zero hours they're all screwed in exactly the same way and and they do, and this is what Phil Burton Cartledge says in the in the Corbyn Effect book. He said people call this a youth effect or a youth quake, but actually, actually it's a cohort class effect. We're mm. looking at people subject to the same economic peril, voting in the same way. And that is actually not like the 80s. That is much more like the 40s. The last block working class vote for a Labour yeah. Party was Clem Attlee. And so I look at Corbyn and I still think... I mean, I'm still furious about Brexit, obviously. I still think there are problems with the way he listens and responds and moves and is agile. But I am looking at somebody who has a cohort class support base, which it, a lot of people are desperate not to understand, but it's as plain as the nose on your face, I think. So the next Atlee. That just ends with me sounding like I'm threatening old people, no, old, no, old yeah. Tory voters. I'm really not. No. I don't want anybody to die, but, you know. Obviously. Well, actually, uh, Corbyn voters are getting older and older. There was a thing that said that the average age was like 30 at the beginning of the election campaign. And it was yeah. 45 by the end because that cohort you're talking about actually, yeah, actually goes, goes all the way up hard, to 50, probably, yeah, now. Yeah, it yeah, doesn't, yeah. It's no longer just 20-year-olds. So you, you lured me into talking some more. We've got to stop yeah, because know, otherwise we'll get shut out. Williams, thank you so much. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Anyone with even the most cursory interest in current affairs would have noticed that we've just entered an important anniversary year. It's 100 years since British women won the vote. Except, of course, it isn't, and they didn't. More accurate would be to say that it's 100 years this month since some women, about 40% of the eligible population, those over 30 and meeting the property qualifications, got the vote. Not until 2028 can we celebrate women, regardless of class, being granted the right to vote on the same terms as men. I point this out not to be churlish, not to suggest... (laughs) Not to suggest that the winning of the vote, even for just 40%, wasn't and isn't something to celebrate, but rather because its simplification of the history continues to skew things now, affecting the way we commemorate the suffrage movement, but also how we conceive of the future, you know, of, of what is left to be done and how best to act on it. There is an important difference, for example, between suffragists and suffragettes, which is why not everyone is happy about a statue of Millicent Fawcett due to be unveiled in Parliament Square in April. Not everyone sees that as a victory. Why? Emmeline Godfrey joins us in the studio now to explain. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I mentioned that statue there of, of Millicent Fawcett. Following a petition by um, the activist Caroline Criado Perez, the suffragist leader, Fawcett, she'll be the only woman to join 11 men already standing in Parliament Square. So, I mean, that is an achievement, to be sure, but the petition asks specifically for a suffragette. Why does that distinction matter? Well, the suffragettes 
described themselves as militants in a new kind of form in the 1900s, as distinct from the suffragists who had been campaigning in the 19th century in a kind of polite manner to Parliament by sending in petitions, uh, by holding meetings. The suffragettes said, no, OK, that's really not worked. We've been waiting decades and decades, many petitions later. We need to take some direct action and we need to make the subject newsworthy. The term suffragette was coined by the a Daily Mail Daily Mail, as, yes. a, as a criticism, wasn't it? It was, it was a kind of a, a deliberately sort of mean-spirited term. Yeah, it was kind of to distinguish them as women who were, in a sense, you know, a bit sort of petty-minded, a bit silly, a little bit frivolous, you know, like the, the term leatherette, you know, that kind of thing. It's not, not it's like a, it's a sham, it's not the real uh. thing. Uh, but then they reclaimed it, did they? They did, yeah. And indeed, Christabel Pankhurst uh, founded the magazine The Suffragette, and she actually described the suffragettes as very much forward-thinking women. And initially, the, the name was actually uh, pronounced suffragette, you know, so we're going to get the vote. Yeah. So with a hard G, hard G rather than a soft G. Did they, dis- not? I suppose it's despised too strong, did they look down upon the suffragists as too polite, as people who, if they were to just dominate the movement, it would never get anywhere? I think to an extent, I think um, some of them are very grateful for the suffragists to have raised public consciousness in the 19th century to the cause. But I think by the 1900s, especially Mrs. Pankhurst, I mean, she was getting a bit impatient. You know, she realised that yet another meeting with, you know, the, the, the politicians, polite meetings where various suffrage organisations would get together and put forward their views politely, that just wasn't really getting anywhere. You know, they had to do something to, you know, make this a new news worthy subject to in a sense almost inconvenience the public a little bit make some noise make them notice and so I suppose the, the decision to have a suffragist as as the the subject of the statue in Parliament Square that's very much a conscious choice to not reward what is defined as terrorist behavior by some people yeah I mean I think some of the suffragettes, well, many of them weren't. It didn't necessarily always go into, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of terrorist uh, types of activities. Many of them continued on, for instance, um, holding meetings. Again, perhaps smashing one or two windows. They didn't necessarily all go and blow up buildings or, you know, set fire to, you know, sports stands and things. They didn't all do that. But I think. Having the statue up to Melissa Fawcett, that really makes us aware of the hard work that was done before the suffragette campaign. And also that it was done during that too. So, for instance, you know, there's a book recent that's recently coming out by Jane Robinson, and she looks at the suffragists and all the campaigning that they were doing, and they put themselves through a lot of dangerous activity, and the public heckled them and threw, you know, um, various missiles at them as they were trying to say, you know, we're not going to burn anything down, we're not going to smash anything up, we just want to campaign peacefully for the vote. And it's to kind of appreciate that that was going on at the same time. I'd never heard of the the, the Great Pilgrimage of mm. 1913. Mm. I've not met anyone when I've talked about this. Period. I've not met anyone who'd heard of it either. Yeah. So tell tell us tell us about that. Well, I think uh, Jane Robinson's book's marvelous because actually it's not really something that many people know about. The Pilgrimage was, it was a response to a lot of the militant campaign that was going on by the suffragettes. The ladies who went on the pilgrimage to show people that they were peaceful. You know, they wore instead of the purple, white, and green of the Women's Social and Political Union founded by Emmeline. Pankhurst, they they wore red, white and green to actually show, you know, that they were suffragists. It was in a 
sense, a more reasoned kind of argument. You know, we're going to come to to meet you uh, where you live, you know, meet you on street corners, you know, village squares, on various roads, you know, that kind of thing. We're going to come to you and we're going to persuade you uh, in a very civilised way to, to, to grant votes for women because it makes sense. And we're not going to just smash up windows and kind of get, you know, publicity like that. And so this pilgrimage, you know, there were many different routes that they that they started out from different um, parts of the UK and they all converged on London. Afterwards, you know, uh, one of the politicians was actually saying, well, you know, I think actually you might have a point. So I, I think actually really? they, 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 they kind of gained some ground there. What, did the suffragettes alienate some people? I was reading a story about mm. uh, one of the, when they slashed one of the paintings, not the Rokeby Venus, but an, another painting at the Royal Academy. And a man saw the woman doing it and actually said, good for you, this is a good thing. And the crowd gathered and punched him and sort of threw him to the ground because he was supporting what was seen to be this very disconcerting social movement, the suffragette movement. From the remove of history, are we saying that it was a necessary thing because it unsettled people or did it did it put people off who otherwise might have joined the cause? It did put some people off. Um, initially, um, some who were very vocal in the campaign, for instance, the novelist Elizabeth Robbins, she wrote the first suffragette play and the convert, which was um, a novel that was kind of derived from this play called Votes for Women with an exclamation mark. Uh, she was very vocal in the campaign and very good friend, you know, of Emmeline Pankhurst. And then eventually she thought, mm, this isn't quite right, the direction that we're heading in. So even kind of high-profile members like that definitely did. But it's interesting that you mentioned the attack on the man who was supporting the, the attack on, on, on the work of art, because sometimes people could actually get support for the cause, suffragettes, and indeed their male supporters sometimes found in these meetings that, say, somebody would heckle at them or be abusive towards them, somebody else in the audience would think, well, that's not right, perhaps that guy's got a point, perhaps women do need the vote. Really? So it also kind of worked like that too. So this was necessary. I mean, I mean, if they hadn't adopted these militant tactics, is it too simplistic to say there wouldn't have been the vote in, in 1980? I think they really helped to raise the awareness, but I think also some of the skills that they needed, the organisation, going out and actually putting themselves at risk, you know, stepping out of the home in many instances, you know, some came from sheltered backgrounds, and that really gave them some of the skills that they use to you know undertake the war work and I think that and some suffragettes did actually in their memoirs say had it not been for my experiences you know working with the WSPU or you know the NUWSS National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies by Melissa Garrett Fawcett then you know I wouldn't have been equipped as equipped to deal with war work. I think one of the one of the the virtues of your of your piece you've reviewed a, a number of books in it and and it really sort of shows how mosaic mm, the whole oh yeah was and definitely there does seem to be a tendency uh, in memorialising commemorating things mm. like this to kind of gloss over and say that they're all all part of the same kind of coherent movement mm. and, and, and these mm. books I mean they they really bring the personality back to history don't they so that's what I love actually loved about all five of them they were really outstanding and they're all diff different ways and I think it'd be kind of unfair to camp to, to compare say um, G Professor June Purvis's book which is an academic book aimed at an academic audience to say you know Robert Wainwright's book which is very much for a popular audience you so can buy it from the high street so June Purvis's is, is book about Christabel Pankhurst and Robert Wainwright is about the the airborne yes, suffragist yes. Muriel Matters. <laughs> Muriel Matters. The elocutionist oh, from Australia. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> 
Uh, well, t- tell us about Christabel, uh, Christabel Pankhurst then. Why? Why? Because she sort of is a figure in need of rehabilitation. Oh yeah, I actually love this book, and the reason I loved it was because um, you know some of these films that you get where say you don't know anything about the subject at all. Say, for instance, the film about um, Ayrton Senna and Alan Prost, yeah. or you know, again, you've got James Hunt versus Nicky Lauda at Rush. You don't have to know anything about Formula One at all to understand this kind of this duality, this duel between the two figures. And what Jean Purvis really beautifully sets up in this book is the conflict between Sylvia. You think you know suffrage history by the way that Sylvia's told it, and Christabel, hey, look at the texts again, go back, you know, look at the school reports, look at the letters, let's reevaluate Sylvia's version of things. And I thought that was a really, it was really bracing and actually fantastic, you know, um, addictively addictive read based. based so who was on this Christabel kind of, then? Where does she fit into the story? Well, Christabel was the kind of the ostensible favourite of Emmeline Pankhurst. She was uh, one of the key organisers of the Women's Social and Political Union, setting it up with her mother in 1903. She was also qualified as a lawyer, but she wasn't allowed to practice at the time. And she was always seen as a kind of a show lady. So, you know, she'd get on stage and she'd wear beautiful dresses and she would just speak very confidently to the audience. And, you know, she knew how to deal with hecklers. She was very authoritative, but she could also, as a number of critics said at the time, you know, could be a bit cold. And especially the way that, you know, in 1912, she and her mother are depicted a lot in history of getting rid of the Pethic Lawrences. Uh, And the Pethic Lawrences were key figures in the Women's Social and Political Union. They really kind of treated Christabel like a daughter in a sense, very close to her. Um, And there was a decision taken that, you know, they were very rich, but they were a liability because they had so many assets and the government could go after them. Every time they were jailed and every time there was another, you know, campaign, the government would sort of try to seize their assets. And Mrs. Pankhurst, as June Purvis was saying, you know, she, okay, decided to get rid of them. um, But Christabel really had qualms about that. And June Purvis asks us to remember this, that it wasn't just something that, you know, Christabel decided to coldly do. It was really something that bothered her at the time. Because Emily, I, I read a thing saying that she was said in the 50s when people were looking back on her to be like a cross between um, Lenin and Hitler. Oh goodness. Because cause she was very she, interesting. She was yeah. seen as this very yeah. tough figure, wasn't she? Yeah, and actually there was a piece that I was reading about. Uh, it was uh, one of the, uh, I believe it was, the mayor of Cape Town, and she was involved with the suffragette bodyguard that protected Emmeline Pankhurst from re-arrest. And she was talking exactly about that in about, I think it was the 1940s or so, 1950s, and she said she very much compared Mrs Pankhurst, the way that she got her audience into the subject she was talking about almost as a kind of in a mesmeric kind of way yeah. and she led like that in a sense and she said it was actually a little bit you know a little bit uncomfortable in a way too although she admired her she saw that kind of ruthless streak in her today is the day that actually commemorates um, it's 100 years today one of the, 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 the talking points has been um should we pardon I think there's an MP who said um, they want to try and get a pardon for all the suffragettes who committed crimes in, in pursuit of getting the vote. Do you think pardoning is a, is, a, is a worthwhile thing to do? I don't know. I know that many decades after after the ladies were, were involved in the campaign, a number of them actually said in press interviews, oh, by the way, you know, I'm still actually meant to be serving a jail sentence. And decades later, you sort of see them as older ladies and, you know... It's kind of difficult to sort of see them as, you know, criminals who were quite dangerous at the time and a massive security hazard. 
And I think there's so many decades have passed since then, since even those interviews too. I'm just wondering if, you know... I don't know if it necessarily is a necessary thing to pursue in my kind of defang history. I think that's exactly yeah. It's almost like a bit of a pat on the head somehow. They committed crimes because mm. they had to in order to make the point. If you mm. then take away their mm. criminal mm. record, in some ways that takes away part of their protest. Their protest was that they had mm. to go and they mm. felt they had to go mm. and do this stuff. I, I don't suppose they were looking for. Would they be? I just. I mean, who am I to say? But it, it feels like saying, "Oh, it wasn't a crime," when it was a crime, and they yeah. had to commit a crime in order to make the point. Yeah. But then also the, the other aspect too is that some of these crimes were very serious and could have turned out, you know, quite badly. I mean, uh, Diane Atkinson she mentions the uh, attack on Lewis Harcourt's house in 1912, and she said, you know, there were about a dozen people or so in the house, and that, you know, they could well, they, they they could have something could have gone seriously wrong there. So I mean, do you kind of, in retrospect, pardon kind of crimes that are on that level yeah. that were carried? on afterwards and of course the other thing people tend to forget is that it was a massive security headache for the special branch because at the time you know there were so many political assassinations yeah, Irish nationalism was very high at oh the time, gosh wasn't it? yeah and the, you know the link with Fenianism too and you get that other sense of perspective when you look at the police opinion on what was going on you for instance learn that it's actually quite a scary thing if a lady came came up to a politician and uh, you know just started heckling them because they didn't know what the women were going to do yeah Given the background of all these assassinations, is it well? And you and you can't you can't rewrite history. I I, I think because mm. the, the parallel people said with people who were convicted of homosexuality, but that seems to me so if you're born gay, you shouldn't be convicted for it. This is this is these these crimes were actions by people who felt they had to take those actions, and we can say mm. they were forgivable and and they weren't they were morally acceptable their actions, but to say that they weren't crimes when they were recognisable crimes and they would be crimes today, mm, well, that's seems, the other po- seems to yeah. miss the point. Well, that's the other thing too, because I think certainly in the last 10 years or so within suffragette um, history, a number of scholars have pointed out uh, that you know a number of these crimes, they would be considered as terrorist acts today. So I think that's something to bear in mind, but not all the women engaged in those. No. That's another thing also to mention. And then the more you delve into it, the more complex it becomes. And then, you know, it's just simply the definition of suffragette and suffragist. And then you've got militant suffragist, which is, as one of the authors was saying, was the, you know, the Women's Freedom League. So, uh, again, it just kind of breaks down and breaks down until you think you've understood it. And actually, all these books, as they've shown in their own different ways, no, you haven't. You need to relook at something which you actually thought was written about and discussed copiously, and you need to go back and look at it again that seems like a fitting way to to end it really. sorry i was going to mention as well God. kitty marshall because oh, yes. <laughs> you've written a book about her well i'm writing a book on kitty marshall who was actually uh, the lady who was one of the key people responsible for the statue of emmeline pancrist that you'll see in victoria tower gardens today ah. And she was a very good friend of Emmeline Pancras. She was on her bodyguard team, uh, assigned to protect her from re-arrest under the Cat and Mouse Act. So she learnt skills in jiu-jitsu. Um, and <laughs> what, to stop people getting too close to, to Emmeline? Uh, well, to stop the police re-arresting her under the Prisoner's Temporary Discharge of Ill Health Act, a very clunkily kind of phrased um, uh, law that was passed in 1913. And she lived in, in Essex with her husband, Arthur, who was a lawyer for the Women's Social and Political Union. And he risked like his reputation and also, you know, he sometimes got into some of these confrontations too. He actually sometimes got her out of situations as well, coming, you know, came and got her at one point from an island in the middle of, uh, I think it's, it's Sort of near Parliament Square, an island of traffic, and he just sort of got her out of that. Did he do jujitsu too? I don't that know. That would yeah. be interesting. <laughs> to, uh, it would be interesting to imagine. Did she ever use the jujitsu? 
Uh, she doesn't actually mention it in her memoirs, but I'm, I imagine that she probably had some kind of basic skills in it. I said her memoirs are wonderful and they're kept at the Museum of London, as well as uh, the necklace that she created to commemorate her uh, spates in jail, which is um, exhibited as part of the Museum of London exhibition that's gone on just now. And um, my book is going to be called Kitty and the Cats, Mrs. Pankhurst's Suffragette Bodyguard and the London Police. So I'm also looking at it from a slightly different angle as well. That sounds really fun. We can see that passion on a final, final note in your your choice of of bangles today. (laughs) Green, purple and white. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been making a lot of these recently. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good spot. Even as you were talking about green, purple and white, that didn't didn't connect. I'm I'm useless. That's really all we have time for this week. I think we could have talked about both of these things. Absolutely. And they come together as well in a way that we would have to have a whole other show for. Stop stop talking. (laughs) Our thanks go to Zoe Williams and Emmeline Godfrey. If you want to read more from the TLS, do go to the website or buy a copy of the paper. This issue also covers both the American left and the American right and has a piece on kissing by Christine Rapinian, the brilliant author of the Cat Person short story. And I have reviewed the new Julius Caesar at the Bridge Theatre in London, which is really, really good. If you have a chance to go and see it there, you really like it. Go and wander around while people <laughs> get assassinated. It's very good fun. We also have a special extra podcast for you this week. Michael, the Dr. Keynes, will be interviewing the novelist Gregory Normanton. So check that out. And do remember to review this podcast this week in the form of a haiku. We shall read the best next week, I promised. Next week in the TLS, we will be considering the American character with published lectures by Marilyn Robinson and Edith Wharton. The latter definitely won't be on the podcast, alas. Until next week then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.